0: All right, well, good morning. Uh, As we get ready to uh, jump into our sermon for today, would you join me in a word of prayer? Loving God, we are uh, grateful for this chance to be together today. Uh, We're grateful for the chance to be together in this room, and we're grateful um, for the gift of technology and the the chance to be together um, even in our homes. And God, we're grateful for your spirit, um, which somehow mysteriously, divinely, uh, is drawing us together, forming this body of Christ. And so God, as we turn now and uh, open the scriptures and wrestle with them, we yield ourselves to your spirit and ask that your spirit would lead us, guide us, shape us, and form us more and more into the image of Jesus. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we have uh, been working our way through the gospel according to John. And this morning, as we uh, turn to John chapter 9, we come across a bit of a troubling story. Maybe it's not troubling for you, uh, but it's troubling for me, and uh, I have the microphone, so I'm going to bring you into my troubling here. So, uh, in John chapter 9, in the opening part of the story, we read, As he, meaning Jesus, walked along, he saw a man uh, blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus, Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground, made mud with the saliva, spread it on the man's eyes, saying to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. Then he went and washed and came back able to see. The neighbors and those who had asked him before as a beggar, those who had seen him before as a beggar uh, began to ask, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some were saying, it is. Others were saying, no, but it's someone like him. He kept saying, I am the man, but they kept asking him, then how were your eyes open? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. Then I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. Anybody else have any sort of discomfort at this point we 'll get there, don't worry. All right, so Jesus comes along and he 's walking with his disciples, and they see this man who has been born or who was born blind he 's been blind his entire life from his birth, and his disciples turn to Jesus and they ask, "Who sins?" His parents or him that he was born blind. Now before we give like, the, the disciples too much uh, or before we, we uh, no, not flack, that's, that's a good thing. Before we look down on the disciples too much here, um, like this would have reflected their worldview. Like this, this thing happened. This man was born blind. Uh, this unfortunate thing happened to this man, and in their understanding of the world, somebody had to sin to cause this. So they're asking Jesus, "Who sinned? Who, who, who caused this blindness to happen in this man? Was it the man himself? Did he sin, or did his parents? caused this blindness to be in him? Did his parents sin that caused this, him to be unable to see? I love Jesus' response here because Jesus turns and he says, neither. <laughs> it's as if Jesus in some ways is rejecting this entire sort of worldview, recognizing that the world is far more complex than they're, they're giving it credit for, recognizing that the world may not be as black and white as we want it to be, but that the world exists in a far much more gray area. And so Jesus rejects this premise. Now, if Jesus had just stopped there, we would be a okay. But I think what the problematic part of this passage is, is that Jesus continues on here. And after he says that neither this man nor his parents sinned, he says he was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. Anybody have an issue with this now, Yeah. Yes, this is exactly why we have some issues here, because this seems to suggest that this man was just some sort of pawn in God's schemes, right? You can put yourself in the man's shoes here, right? Say he's 30 years old. This means that for 30 years, he was blind because God decided that God wanted this man to be born blind so that one day God could show up walking around in flesh and snap his fingers and then he could see and everybody worship God, including this man. I don't know if you're as petty as I am, but I probably would not respond that way, but rather I'd be a little more livid about this divine sort of plan where I was born blind from birth so that everybody could see goodness through me. There's an issue here, and I think it raises this bit of a troubling question of like, is this what God is like? Does God cause these bad, unfortunate things to happen? Does God cause people to be born blind so that God can show up and then God get all of this glory and praise and worship as a result of it. Spoiler alert, I don't think so. (laughs) I think there's actually more happening than meets the eye here. And to help us figure out what's happening uh, uh, beyond the surface level reading here, we need to get into some textual criticism, yeah? (laughs) Did anybody wake up this morning thinking, I hope we talk about textual (laughs) criticism in church? yeah probably not but here 's the deal this is <laughs> but here 's the deal this is this is really, really important, and as we work our way through it, I promise like we 'll understand why it matters here so if you 're not aware, uh, our Bibles were not originally written in English, right uh, We have our Old Testament, which is sometimes referred to as the Hebrew Bible, which was originally written in Hebrew, yeah. Uh, we have uh, our New Testament, which was primarily written in Greek, which means that as we get to our English Bible here, there was an act of translation, meaning that we took the, the original Hebrew, the original Greek, and we translated it into English. Now, where this gets confusing is uh, this is a picture of an original Greek manuscript. Yeah, looks like a big jumbled mess of just one continuous thought, right? It's, it's tricky here. There's, like, no spaces, There's no periods, there's no paragraph breakers, or anything like that. So when the translators come to the book of John, and they're looking at something similar to this, I think this might have been from 2 Corinthians, but you you get the point here. They're having to look at this, and they're having to make decisions of where there are spaces in words. (laughs) They're having to make decisions where there are periods, where a sentence ends and where a new sentence begins. They're having to make decisions for us and our English understanding of how Uh, communication works of where like paragraph breakers are and then later on where there's chapters and where there's verses now what this means is is that like when we get our english translation of a bible we are already one degree removed from the uh, some sort of interpretation Meaning that when we get our English Bible, it has already been interpreted for us by one step. Does that make sense? Because you're looking at all of this and they're having to make interpretive decisions of what is trying to be communicated so that those of us that are dependent upon an English translation can actually read it. Now, here's where this gets tricky. Sometimes there are rules within like the Greek language that uh, don't make sense in English. Like suggesting something at the beginning of a story and assuming that it will be carried on throughout without actually explicitly saying it. So sometimes, uh, translators will add in words that aren't there. (laughs) Now, again, they do this for a good reason. Like, if you've dedicated your life to understanding things like Hebrew and Greek and then have given your life to, like, translating a Bible so that common folk like us can have it to, like, live faithful lives of following Jesus... I don't think you're like a manipulative sort of person, right? Like they're doing this out of goodwill, but sometimes issues arise. So we come back to John chapter nine, verses three and four here. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. You see the bold underlined underlined section here? Not there in the original Greek manuscript. (laughs) And there's a reason why there's an issue here, because that's the problem part of all of this, right? (laughs) We don't like the fact that it suggests that God made someone blind so that God's glory can be shown up in this person, right? Now, fortunately, not every translator translates it this way. Most major Bible translations do translate it this way, but there are some translators who um, uh, choose not to add in words. So there's a scholar by the name of Joanne Brandt, who is a professor at Goshen College. She translates this passage like this. Neither did this one nor his parents sin. But in order that the works of God might be manifest to you, it is necessary for us to work the works of the one who has sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one is able to work. Well, that feels a little different, doesn't it? (laughs) Let's put these side by side here. See, it it seems as though the issue for these translators really come down to this idea of so that or in order that. For the NRSV, they're trying to make sense of this word, so that, that's in the the original Greek. And so they add in this phrase, he was born blind, to try and make sense of it. But for Joanne Branch, she chooses not to add in a word and just let the, in order that, be, and let it sort itself out. So that this, in order that, becomes not that this man was born blind so that the works of God might be revealed unto him, but rather the in order that is there to say that when an opportunity presents itself to reveal the works of God, we must do that. Here's why this matters, right? Because in the NRSV, it seems as though... Uh, this man is part of God's scheme, a pawn in God's scheme in some way, right? That, that God has made him blind from birth so that God's glory might be revealed in him. But with Joanne Brant's translation, Jesus is just an opportunist here, right? <laughs> Jesus is caught up in this new create, in this uh, the, the works of God in this moment, and he's looking for opportunities to to do the works of God in the midst of whatever he's finding here. Which raises an interesting question then, right, of like, what are these works of God? In this particular story, it seems as though the works of God are healing, right? God heals, or Jesus heals this man who was born blind. We saw a few weeks ago Jesus healing the son of a royal official who was on his deathbed. Sometimes the works of God show up as healing. Other places in John, the works of God show up as like transformation, uh, we think about the water being turned into wine, this foreshadowing of something that will happen to us. In other places of John, the, the works of God show up as like pursuits of righteousness and justice and inclusion. We think of the story of Jesus cleansing the temple and like paving a way so that all can have access to the life of God. In other places in John, these works of God are revealed as like Jesus pointing to the way of eternal life, when Jesus tells us to to eat his flesh and drink his blood, or when he says that there is living water that is gushing up from us. Ultimately, at the end of John's gospel, we'll see that the grand work of God is the resurrection of Jesus, where God overcomes death dramatically. Now, there's one phrase that we can use that kind of sums up all of these ideas of what are these works of God, and that is the phrase, new creation. New creation points to the redemption of God, the restoration of God, the, the, the wholeness of God coming into this world, the, 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 the tendency of God to take all of the broken things and be putting them back to pieces. And what we see throughout the life of Jesus is that Jesus is obsessed with new creation. This completely consumes all of his passion and all of his energy and all of his focus so that the life of Jesus, the the stories, the teachings of Jesus, the very embodiment of how Jesus lives his life is caught up in this new creation, which is why he's a bit of an opportunist when it comes to seeing the chaos and the misery around us, right? New Testament theologian N.T. Wright notes that The chaos and misery of this present world is, it seems, the raw materials out of which the loving, wise, and just God is making his new creation. So Jesus, this opportunist for new creation, comes along and he sees this man who was born blind, which, again, was not the man's fault, was not his parents' fault, nor was it God's fault. It was just a result of the chaos and misery of our present world. And Jesus gets his hands on this and begins to create new creation from this chaos and misery. Now, new creation feels like good news then, right? Like, we should all be able to get behind that and celebrate it, accept it, and move forward with this good news behind us, right? Wrong. (laughs) Because uh, we're told later on in John chapter 9 that the Pharisees catch wind of this. Now, the Pharisees are a particular sect of Jewish believers who hold to a particular set of Jewish beliefs. And uh, they're often presented as a bit of an opponent, a bit of a foil to Jesus throughout the Gospels. And they catch wind of what's happening, and so they begin to question this man. And they're just, uh, they're like pelting him with questions, and they're not satisfied with the answers that they get, and we're told that they're divided and they and they, they don't believe. And so then they begin to like question his parents and interrogate his parents. And the parents are like, hey, he's old enough to fend for himself. Like you go back to him. So they go back to the man now and they begin to question him more and more. And like we're feeling like the, the pressure being built up here, right? We're feeling the hostility growing, uh, building up here. We're feeling the tension rising to the point that like this tension grows so directly towards the man and indirectly towards Jesus that they chase this man out. Now, we, we, we want to, like, look down on the Pharisees. And we want to be upset with them. We want to say, like, tiss tiss, shame on you. You should have known better. But, like, I get it. Like, new creation can be a little scary, right? Because it's, it's new. <laughs> new things are often really scary for me because I like to have, like, my clean little boxes in my head of how things work. And when something doesn't fit in that box, it feels like a threat, and so it's really scary for me, right? This can be like average, ordinary things, like when walkie-talkie throws out a new rotational menu, and like these are weird combinations of flavors, and it feels scary to me when you know, I really like my old drinks. But, or it could be like these really big sorts of things, like a new sort of way of understanding what it means to be human, a new sort of perspective of how we are to follow Jesus in the midst of our present world. Regardless of what the new thing is, new things can be scary because they're new. And so the Pharisees are met with this newness of this new creation, and they respond to this newness with things like fear. They respond to this newness with things like cynicism. They respond to this newness with things like resistance. Now towards the end of the story, Jesus shows up and meets the man who has just been chased out of the place. And he comes to him and he says, do you believe in the son of man? Which is his way of saying, "Like, do you believe in the one who's going to be this agent of new creation? And he's like, I don't know who he is. You point him out, maybe we can talk about it. And he's like, you're looking at him, baby. And he's like, all right, I believe. And then he starts to worship him. And unlike the Pharisees, what we see with the man and how he responds to this new creation is that it brings out something like love from him. It brings out something like wonder from him. It brings out something like wholeness from him not just a physical wholeness, but like this man would have been ostracized from his community and having been physically healed, now he's able to like socially be healed as well. I think this is a really fascinating story and I think in some ways it can act as a bit of a case study to like the effects that new creation can have on us and our own sort of responses to new creation. And it seems that like new creation cultivates something within us. For the man who was healed, it cultivated love, but for the Pharisees, it cultivated fear. For the man who was healed, it cultivated wonder, but for the Pharisees, it cultivated cynicism. For the man who was healed, it cultivated wholeness, but for the Pharisees, it cultivated resistance. This idea of new creation is a common thread all throughout the book, of John, to the point that we come to the end of the Gospel of John, and he tells us why he wrote all of this. And he says, it's so that you might believe in Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, and through believing you may have life in his name. Meaning, like, not just some sort of mental exercise, but that we would give our life to this mystery that we see in Jesus. See, all throughout John, he seems to be hinting and suggesting that new creation cultivates something within us. And all throughout John, he's just simply asking us the question, which will we choose? Now, as I sat with this story uh, for the last couple of weeks, I kept coming back to the story of, of somebody else. It's the story of this little girl. Anybody know who this is? Ruby Bridges, Yeah. Ruby Bridges was born in uh, the Brown versus Board of Education era, resistant South. So you have the Brown versus Board of Education, this monumental ruling that schools can no longer be segregated. But if you know anything about American history, you know that the South was a little resistant to some of these sorts of changes, right? And so she, growing up in, in New Orleans, uh, was a, a later recipient of this sort of thing. So as the pressure to integrate was turned up, the New Orleans school board decided to create like an entrance exam that black students would have to go through in order to get into white schools. But they designed it to be so incredibly hard that no black student could actually get into a white school. But six students passed. One student decided to stay in their school. Three students uh, went to a school together, leaving 6-year-old Ruby Bridges to head off to a white school all by herself. Her mom was really passionate about this and said something to the effects of like this isn't just a step forward for Ruby, but this is a step forward for all black children forever onward. I don't know how you interpret the story, but I interpret it as one of like new creation, right? We see here like the redemption, the restoration of God, God putting things back to rights. Not everybody interpreted it that way though, right? Because as six-year-old Ruby Bridges heads into school, she has to be escorted by four U.S. Marshals every day. Because as she heads into school, she's met by white adults shouting slurs at her. She's met by white adults throwing things at her. She's met by white adults pulling their children out of their school because they can't fathom their white children going to school with a black child. She's met with white uh, teachers refusing to teach her all except for one teacher in the entire school. Uh, There's a a famous American painter by the name of Norman Rockwell who um, painted a a picture of this experience of Ruby Bridges heading into school. I'm gonna show it here in a second. it's not an easy painting, just as a fair warning. Um, there's some harsh words in it, um, it's, it's a bit disturbing. So if you wanna look away, you wanna get up, totally fine. But um, just fair warning, we will look at that here. So here's the painting. Um, it's called The Problem We All Live With. It's a disturbing picture, right? It's a really uncomfortable one. Like you look at it and you're like, oh, that doesn't feel good. Like you see this little girl, you see racial slurs like plastered on the wall. You see a tomato thrown at her. You see like she has to be protected by these four U.S. Marshals and it's really uncomfortable. But I think if we're able to sit with it and move through that discomfort, we begin to see that it's also like a a really subversive sort of painting. That in a time when like a black child wouldn't have been the the focal point of like um, pop art, here she is. But it's not that she's just the subject, but like look at her, like walking with this courageous sort of posture into this whole new world that is scary and terrifying for anybody else, into this world that's filled with all sorts of chaos and misery. I think this, this painting is uncomfortable. I think it's subversive, and I think it's one that is of new creation. I think this painting points to the present reality, not just of the 50s and 60s, but also to our current present reality of one that's marked by all sorts of misery and chaos, and yet new creation bursting forth in the midst of it. This painting, much like new creation, does something within us, it cultivates something within us, and it's begging us, asking us, which will we choose? Love or fear? Wonder or cynicism? wholeness or resistance, or may, maybe we could even just say new creation or chaos and misery. See, my friends, new creation is bursting forth all around us. Of course, there's chaos and misery. This, the, the, the events of this past week were far too big of a reminder of the chaos and the misery that's all around us. And yet, in the midst of that, for, for those of us who are following Jesus, we trust that there is new creation bursting forth all around us. If only we have eyes to see it. And if we have the eyes to see it, the, cho- and the, the choice then remains for us to choose. Do we choose to be like the angry white parents and reject it? Do we choose to be like the Pharisees who reject it? And do we end up like the ones that Jesus described at the end, those who remain blind? Or do we choose like ruby bridges to like walk courageously towards this, this vision of new creation, Do we choose to be like the man who was healed and receive it as a gift of God, the grace of God in our life, and in turn become the ones who actually see? New creation cultivates something within us. Which will we choose? Let's pray. Loving God, we're grateful for the the stories of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the gift of Jesus and the resulting like, new creation that bursts forth from that. God, as we recognize new creation cultivating something within us and we ask ourselves like, which will we choose? God, may your spirit be, be prompting us, leading us, guiding us into the way of love and wonder and wholeness. And God, ultimately, may we like, get so caught up in this new creation that, that we answer your invitation to be co-creators with you, seeing new creation burst all around us, joining in on that work so that your healing and wholeness might flow through us to this world. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.